ladies and gentlemen, I thought, think we should, uh, should begin. Uh, my name is uh, Chris Kennard. I'm the head of the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neurosciences. And a very warm welcome to you all on this very special occasion when the, uh, Tim Behrens, our new professor of computational neuroscience, gives his inaugural lecture. Uh, Tim is one of the principal investigators at the Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging of the Brain Center, and his world-class research over the past 10 years has contributed greatly to the international recognition of the center as one of the top half-dozen brain imaging centers in the world. He took a first-class MSc in Engineering Science here in Oxford, where he studied information engineering and machine learning. Under the influence of Professor Mike Brady, he became interested in brain imaging, and his DPhil, supervised by Steve Smith, uh, he decided that MR diffusion imaging was an exciting potential tool for mapping the connections between different areas of the brain. He went on to successfully develop a novel probabilistic tractography algorithm to apply to diffusion imaging data, and the papers from these studies are very highly cited, and the new methodology, in fact, rapidly became the most widely used diffusion analysis tool for revealing brain connections. But not content with major, making this major contribution to systems neuroscience, Tim has pursued his second interest, an understanding of learning and decision-making in the human brain, using an ingenious fusion of computational modeling and functional brain imaging. He's pioneered a novel approach to experimental design in functional imaging in which quantitative computational models of cognitive processes can be directly related to brain activity. His research, which has been supported by fellowships and awards from both the MRC and Wellcome Trust, has received international recognition. He's a key player in the NIH-funded Human Connectome project led by David Van Essen in the USA. In 2013, he was awarded a James S. McDonald Scholar Award and an Early Career Award by the Society for Neuroeconomics. And most recently, this year, he won the Leonard Nielsen Award for his crucial efforts for the advancement of diffusion MR. So while scanning some of his papers, I came across a paper in Trends in Cognitive Sciences entitled, What is the Most Interesting Part of the Brain? This was a study to see whether... In the vast MR literature, certain brain areas are more popular than others, and whether studies of certain regions of the brain guarantee publication in a higher-impact journal. I can't resist a, a, a quick quote from the results section. Uh, so Tim says, The champion of the popularity contest was a pre-SMA, defeating the nearest contender, the devastated frontal cortex, by 25%. The rest of the article goes on in this slightly irrelevant style, typical of Tim, who manages to conduct the highest quality of science with a sense of real enthusiasm and enjoyment. So, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure that I now ask Tim to give his inaugural lecture on imaging the mechanisms of behavioural control. Tim. Thanks, Chris. I hope you meant irreverent. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, right, excellent. So this is a uh, video of Lawrence Hunt. <laughs> um, Lawrence, what Lawrence is about to do is he's about to attempt to pick up a cereal packet with his teeth without falling over. <laughs> 
Uh, behind him is uh, Rocky and Mars, who may be here today, and Erie Borman, who's in California. And these guys are both world champions of this problem. <laughs> but, but Lawrence is um, really not quite as uh, proficient, as you'll see uh, now. Um, <clears throat> this is the uh, dive maneuver. <laughs> first time around, but it might be better second time. Where's the sound? I would give you the sound, but I'm, swe I'm swearing. <laughs> this is the... There you go. Okay. Oh, not quite there. So this, um, so that was uh, Lawrence um, trying to uh, make some decisions about how to um, ex ex execute motor control. Um, and this is another video, this time uh, made by Lawrence Hunt, rather than of Lawrence Hunt. Uh, and this video shows the type of brain activity that was going on in his brain while he was trying to do that. And so first, there would have been some activity in the parietal cortex as he was evaluating what the best thing to do was. And then there would have been, just slightly later, some activity in the premotor cortex, coming up now, as, um, uh, as he was planning the precise actions. And then that activity would have moved back to the primary motor cortex as he was executing those actions and diving onto the floor. And then swathes of the uh, prefrontal cortex would have um, activated as he evaluated the rather pathetic outcome. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what I would describe as a description of the brain activity uh, underlying that kind of task. What we do in our lab is we try to go uh, slightly beyond that uh, descriptive approach uh, to try to develop some kind of understanding of uh, different aspects of that, um, slightly deeper understanding of different aspects of these processes. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, so, for example, we might try to ask uh, several questions uh, that try to index Questions like, why is it some brain regions that are active and not other brain regions that are active? Or, um, what are these different brain regions computing? What are the computations that are going on under the, um, under, um, uh, in different parts of the brain? And most recently, we've put a major effort into uh, this very, very large problem of what's going on underneath those red blobs at the levels of cells and networks. And so uh, we try and do this in humans, um, so, and we try to relate these different computations to behaviour wherever we can. And so I'm going to structure my talk uh, uh, that way, according to these three questions. And the first two uh, I'm going to get through really quite quickly, because many of the people in this audience will be familiar with that work, I hope. Um, uh, and then I'm going to try to spend a lot of my time on this uh, third question, which is what we're excited on, about at the moment. <coughs> Okay, so uh, what are, um, why some brain regions and not others? Um, and uh, throughout this talk, I'm going to try to populate my slides uh, with pictures of people who've made important contributions to the work, uh, partly, of course, to give them some credit, uh, but mostly to uh, share the responsibility for failure. <laughs> right. Uh, okay, um, so if you are interested in understanding why some parts of the brain and not others are active um, in a particular task, a good place to start is to get rid of the cortex altogether and look at what's underneath it. 
Um, this is, uh, if, you're very, if you have a dead braid and you're very skilled with a knife, um, you're, uh, you're, you, you, you'll be able to make pictures like this, which are of the white matter, the paths, the pathways that connect one part of the brain to the other. And it's very, they're very beautiful pictures, but you can also see that these connections are not random. And you can see this rather more precisely if you go and look at a, at a type of approach like this, where um, an injection is made into one part of the brain, here the black area there, and, um, and uh, the, uh, the, the uh, uh, tracer or the virus uh, goes all the way through the axons until it reaches where that connection is going to, and you can see all these dots for where these connections ended up. And you can see air brain areas that are very precise and focused and organised. So Dick Passingham in, in Oxford has, um, uh, has argued extensively that the reason they're so precise and focused is because it's these con connections that constrain the information that's available to a brain region and therefore the function of that brain region, what it can or cannot do. And so he's gone through lots of different brain regions and um, found that each of those brain regions has a unique pattern of connections, for example. So you won't find the same pattern of connections in any two brain regions. And so what we did, what we've spent a lot of time doing since I've been in Oxford, is making techniques which allow us to measure these connections in living humans. Um, so this is not a human, but, it's a, but you can see here a beautiful picture from uh, Sarge Ababdi, who was in my group at the time, um, who's able to uh, pr uh, measure the same connections, both non-invasively, with a technique that you could use in living humans, and invasively with those traces that I showed you before. And you can see that the non-invasive connections do a very good job of mirroring the location of, those, uh, of the, um, the gold standard invasive techniques. So we can measure these uh, white matter pathways non-invasively. And because we can do that, we can do it in humans. So this guy here is not uh, dead. He's going to have lunch in half an hour. But nevertheless, uh, nevertheless I can see his, uh, this, the archaeophysical. Oh, Maxi. <laughs> Do you want me to take him out? <laughs> um, uh, nevertheless, um, uh, nevertheless, you can see his archaeophysical revealed in stunning detail in a picture made by Stan Sotoropoulos just sitting up there. And not only can you uh, see his archaeophysical, but you can also map out all the other places in the brain that are connected to, uh, to by this one seed point here. And you can see it on the right there. So that's like a, a connectivity diagram of, uh, of the connections, the cortical connections of this one seed point on the left here. And of course, you can do that for many, many seed locations or uh, across the brain and build up a human connectome, uh, which looks uh, like a matrix, something like that, which stores information about um, millions of connections in the brain. Now, this is a big advantage, not only because you can do it um, non-invasively in humans, but also because if you were to try to measure this number of connections using that macaque tracer technology, which is more accurate, but is much harder to do, it would take you uh, many, 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 many decades of all of humanity's work. Because you have so many connections and each one might take you months and months uh, to work out. 
So uh, this ability, uh, this, this human, being able to measure connections in so many places is fantastically useful because you can go into this matrix and study uh, some of the organisation of the brain. And this was one of the first things that we did um, here in Oxford with Heidi Hansenberg. Um, and so we were able to show uh, that this uh, part of the brain on the right, the thalamus, connects to this part of the brain on the left, the cortex, in this very structured, organised way. So, a blue, so the blue area here in thalamus in the medial section connects to the prefrontal cortex mostly, whereas just below it is a region that connects to the premotor cortex. And you can see that kind of organisation mapped between structures in the brain. So does that organisation have any functional relevance? And again, with Heidi Johansson-Berg, uh, we tried to answer that question by looking at uh, little small parts of that connectome matrix. So here's one part of the connectome matrix, which is on the boundary of the supplementary and pre-supplementary motor area. And you can see that there's a striking feature of it. There's a division in, that, uh, in this connectome matrix, so that somewhere the connections change very rapidly from one place to the next. <clears throat> and so you can do that, and you map that onto the brain, and you can see that there are two parts of the brain that have very, very different patterns of connection. And if you go and look in, uh, and get your subjects to do a functional experiment, you find those two parts of the brain also have very different functions. So you can say that there's constraints on the function. The, the, uh, the reason there's a division between those two uh, brain regions is to do with constraints placed on uh, uh, that function by the connections that come into and out of the brain. But of course you can find these divisions throughout that connectome matrix, and so you can start um, searching through different parts of the brain, looking for these kind of boundaries and gradients and interesting organisations of connections. And that there are many people here in this audience, here in Oxford and elsewhere, that have published papers trying to um, find these types of divisions in different structures in the brain now. <clears throat> okay, so if we're interested in... Um, uh, what the, this, is, um, uh, uh, this is a particularly spectacular picture of Matthew provided by Mark Walton. Um, if, um, uh, if we're interested in understanding uh, why different parts of the brain are active in d at different times, another approach is to try to understand what these different brain regions are computing. And so as Chris was uh, saying in the, in the introduction, there's an interesting way that you might be able to do that, which has made it into the imaging field uh, very quite recently and is now a pretty, a pretty much a standard in the field. And that is to try to think about your, um, uh, your, your problem that you're trying to solve as if you yourself were the brain. And so um, here, this is the problem you're trying to solve. You have uh, that you want to understand how the brain changes experiences or turns its experiences into behaviour and what you have in order to do that is some neural recordings that you can record the activity in different parts of the brain. <clears throat> well, so one approach that might be of, that is, of, uh, is powerful in trying to solve this problem is to build a model that does exactly the same thing. A model that tries to turn experiences into behaviour and predicts the types of neural recording that you'll make. And the reason that's an interesting thing to do is uh, because when you have that model, you can go and dig inside it and try to understand what the most important computations are ha that are happening in, in that model are. 
and you can go and see if there are brain regions whose activity looks like they're solving some of those important computations. <clears throat> so uh, most of the time, uh, often we've applied this type of approach to problems in learning, uh, problems a little bit like this. This is uh, Jill O'Reilly um, <laughs> learning to ski. Um, <clears throat> and you can see that uh, she's going to make an error. <laughs> so here, here she goes. Uh, she's going to make an error just now, I think. And, uh, and it's going to uh, fall uh, for quite a long way. <laughs> she's going to... Um, <laughs> Still going. <laughs> okay. um, so uh, Jill uh, made an error there um, and, and received a negative outcome from that error. Um, uh, but, but hopefully she will learn from that negative outcome uh, to, um, to perform better next time round. And we can't have people, unfortunately, skiing in the scanner unless we can persuade Chris to buy a very sophisticated device. Uh, so um, we have to solve simpler or different learning problems. And we started off with um, simple problems like learning where the food was in a pack of cards, or learning where the reward was in a pack of cards. Um, and then we would build, again, sophisticated models of how you might solve those problems. And then we'd try and simplify those models down to their essence to try to understand what the key computations were in those models, and then we try and look for those key computations in the brain. And uh, so one, uh, uh, one, of, one type of result looks like this, where one of the key computations is computing that error, that prediction error, that Jill had when she fell over or, or didn't fall over the next time. Um, and the other, another key computation is how do you then learn from that error? How much have you learned from that error? And you can find activity in the midbrain, which looks like it's computing that error, but, um, but it's only the singular cortex or parts of the singular cortex that are required for learning from that error. <clears throat> so this, this trick is useful for, for trying to de um, for deconstruct a particular behavior or a particular experiment, uh, but it's also useful for trying to relate different experiments to each other. Um, and so I've just shown you this example where, the, where the, the problem is trying to find reward. So this is analogous to a monkey trying to find um, his bananas. Uh, but you can also uh, use the same types of models or algorithms uh, for other problems, like trying to learn which of your social partners are, are, are trustworthy or valuable um, in, the, uh, in your environment. And it turns out when you do that, um, you can find the brain uses the exact same algorithms, the same computations, for trying to solve these social learning problems as it does for, for, for solving problems involved in finding reward. But it does so in slightly different brain areas, brain areas that themselves have, have uh, different connections, connections back to other social brain areas. Again, harking back to the fact that the brain areas are constrained by their connections. But that's then useful if you are trying to uh, if, if you're trying to relate these two seemingly very different problems, and you can see that again if you um, think of what happens when you make lesions uh, to these brain regions, as Matthew's group has done in the past, and several people here have done. 
And if you make lesions, so here's what these same brain regions, the singlet sulcus and gyrus in a monkey, where um, lesions have been made to them, and people have lesions, monkeys that have lesions to the sulcus trouble, have trouble learning from reward. Monkeys that have um, uh, lesions to the gyrus are not influenced by others, but uh, if you have a, a, a more computational understanding of what's going on, you can understand that these two problems might be computationally related, even though they initially seem very disparate. And you can maybe understand something deep about the, um, about, about the relationship between these two different brain areas. And then if you're very keen, like Jill is, you can start making extraordinarily complicated models that try to explain much more. Uh, this is actually a model of, uh, of a mode control problem, like, like skiing. And so uh, this is Jill's model of skiing, which she, uh, Jill is the only person, I think, that learned to ski. Uh, by making a model of it, and so she's, <laughs> she's now an excellent skier and an excellent modeler. Okay, right, uh, that's 20 minutes gone, and so I'm, I'm just going to get to the meat of this talk now, which is kind of uh, what we're doing now. So, uh, what is going on, uh, on under these red blobs? And, and so, uh, a major criticism of people uh, that uh, use imaging approaches in humans is that uh, underneath all these red blobs there are lots of cells and synapses doing all sorts of exciting computations um, and we are just blind to them uh, and, we, and we try to explain these broad patterns of activity. And so uh, I think that's a, a reasonable criticism. I think that it's not necessarily... Um, I, think, I think that there are many things that you can do by looking at the broad patterns of activity but nevertheless... It's interesting to ask, can we get deeper, can we get uh, more towards cellular function um, when we're studying humans? And so uh, this is what's going on, uh, on, as we all know, under these um, red, uh, under these red blobs. These are um, some cells, they're very symmetric cells, uh, but, uh, or they're schematics. And so uh, these cells have activities. And so if I just line these cells up down here, if you plot what they would look like through time, they would do something like this. These are cells spiking. These are actually recorded by Ben Hayden um, in the ventromedial frontal cortex. But you can see each one of these cells spikes at a different time, um, and they are presumably doing some information processing or some computation. So if you, were to, um, if you were to look at what this, uh, th th this uh, pattern of activity looked like at any one particular time uh, here, you'd find out that it might look something like this. So some of these cells will be active, and some of these cells uh, will be quiescent, silent. And so the, the assumption in the, in the computational neuroscience community is that that has some relevance. That pattern of activity has some relevance, some deeper meaning, uh, and... But, but often, it's not at all clear what that relevance is. And so a number of the studies that I've been trying to do recently try to ask this quite deep question, I think, of uh, what does this pattern of activity mean? <clears throat> okay, uh, you're going to say we can't do this. It's, uh, it shouldn't be possible to infer these cellular representations in humans because you only have access to this, these coarse imaging voxels which contain thousands of these cells and you can't see each cell independently. If you really want to look at these cellular representations, the trick is to go and record from each one of these cells and measure huge arrays of cellular activity and try and dig in them and understand them. 
And we are doing that in collaboration with our, our, friends, uh, with our friends in Steve Kennelly's lab, there's Lawrence again, looking spectacular, and um, in Mark Walton's lab, and Zhudan Wang. Uh, we have uh, we, we, uh, we have uh, joint projects trying to inf trying to understand relationships between recordings we can measure here and uh, in rodents and monkeys and those that we can measure in uh, in humans. But I think you'll be surprised also at how far you can get without uh, the animal models and just working with humans, because even though we can't measure what each one of these cells is doing. We do have some tricks at our disposal which allow us to measure how similar or different two different representations are. And so we can, we, can, we hope, dissociate uh, two, uh, if, whether two, these two patterns here in two different situations are similar to each other or whether they're different. And for, for the aficionados in the, audience, in the audience, we tend to use repetition suppression, but you can obviously also do it with other techniques. And so, okay, let's see how far we can get just being able to look at similarities and not being able to look at uh, individual cells. <clears throat> so I want to know uh, what this um, uh, cellular representation is. Um, and, uh, and so maybe the first thing that I should do is make a new one in your brains. So uh, I can do that right now uh, by asking you, uh, how much would you like some TJ? So presumably people here who haven't been to the fat duck uh, won't know what tea jelly is or what tea jelly tastes like. And so thinking whether you would want some tea jelly or not um, is going to involve making a new pattern of activity in your brain. But what can we tell about that pattern of activity? <clears throat> Firstly, uh, we can ask, does it look like the pattern of activity that you would get from tea or jelly? Um, and the answer is, yeah, it does, it does. It looks, it looks like a mixture of the activity that you'd get for tea or jelly. So that isn't really a new representation yet, then, is it? That's a, a combination of two other representations where I construct uh, um, a new one online. OK, so if that hasn't quite made a new representation yet, um, I can ask a question like this. What if I let you eat the tea jelly? then you'll have a whole new set of sensory experiences which will be associated with that thing, and that may create a new representation. Well, I can show you um, an example of this here. <laughs> this, is, um, uh, this is Max, who's uh, just stepped out for a second. Um, but this is Max uh, eating his first ever taste of solid food. And so, uh, presumably, this is going to be uh, an un something that he doesn't know what's going to happen and it's going to make a new representation. And you can see he starts off being rather unsure. Um, he doesn't know what to do with it. Um, and then when Louise forces it in his mouth, uh, he, uh, he's now really quite interested. <laughs> so something new has happened. So something new about the representation of this thing in Max's brain, much like what happened, I think, if you ate some uh, tea jelly. And so uh, the answer to that is, yeah, people who've never tasted tea jelly have representations of tea jelly that look like a mixture of tea and jelly, but people that have tasted it have new representations that no longer are similar to the representations of tea or jelly. And you can get that same effect not just by tasting it, but also by just uh, imagining it or thinking about it in different situations many, many times. And so these are people who are just thinking about tea jelly for the first time, and their representation looks like the mixture of tea and jelly, but after you've thought about it many times, it no longer does look like the, the, uh, a mixture of tea and jelly. 
So it seems like we've understood a little bit about what can build a new representation in your brain. Um, but when I asked you this question, you did something really quite remarkable. So you not only thought of tea jelly and made a new pattern of activity, but you were also able to guess whether you would like it or not. And that means that that new, uh, that that new uh, representation came with it a whole load of associations and understanding about, um, uh, about what tea jelly would be like. So how did you do that? That seems like a, um, uh, a deep question about the, uh, the, the, the structure of that representation. And it's, it's a question, really, uh, that says, in that pattern of activity, something told you not only what it was, but where it fit into the world. And there are two ways that we have of understanding... It's only 25 minutes. I'm gonna, I might end up finishing early. So I'm more time for booze. <laughs> this, um, uh, there are two ways we have of understanding uh, uh, where uh, the, the two, two ways we, we know about that the brain has for understanding where things fit into the world. The first is through associations or, or heading links, and the second uh, is through maps. And so I'm just going to uh, I'm, I'm just going to uh, tell you about a couple of studies which try to understand uh, how these associations and how these um, maps are built into that neuronal representation of T-Jelly. I'm not going to work with T-Jelly for these ones because I need to work with slightly more controlled stimuli, uh, but I'm, I'm assuming that the same will apply to T-Jelly. So these are some links, uh, some associations that probably guide your everyday um, uh, decisions very often. You probably are attracted to this kind of stimulus because of its link uh, with uh, coffee, and you may be repelled from this kind of stimulus because of its uh, link with um, a burger. And we have some understanding of how these basic links are built in, are, are encoded into our brain. So here is one of those representations for start for this side here, and one of those representations for this coffee. And we know through uh, Hebbian principles that there are some new excitatory connections formed when you make a link between this representation and this representation, such that this, this guy now contains some information about this guy embedded in its representation. And so if you, uh, if you um, uh, then were to go to activate this red guy here, then you would also see some activity in this green guy here. If you were to go to activate the Starbucks sign, you would see some activity in the coffee. And that presumably means that uh, the, the activity that you would see when you activated the red guy looks a little bit like the, the um, uh, activity that you see when you activate the green guy. And so uh, we can uh, measure this as a similarity between the two populations. Again, remember, in imaging, I can measure that similarity. So if that's true, then I can measure these new associations uh, in, using that same trick that I used to measure uh, T-Jelly, the similarity between two, uh, two representations. And indeed, that's true. If I build a link behaviourally between two shapes that people have never seen before, then the patterns of activity in areas that encode for coloured shapes uh, looks, look, more, look more similar for these guys than they do for, or these guys, than they do for ones that have not been linked together. So I can measure this, this link or this memory, 
And if I do it for, and I can, I can measure it precisely in a particular part of cortex as well. So if I work with shapes that are rotationally invariant, then I can only see this suppression in parts of the brain where the visual representations are also rotationally invariant. So again, I can measure this, uh, we, we believe that we can measure this, um, uh, we can uh, measure these associations as a general mechanism in cortex. So here are some more extreme examples. These are those tea and jelly ones. They suppress to each other after they've been paired. Here's uh, McDonald's and the burger in the, in the reward system or the food system. Um, and so no matter which part of cortex you are, you're interested in, if you, uh, if you pair things together... Uh, that would normally activate that part of cortex, you can start to, to measure that link with imaging, even though it's a sub-voxel um, uh, link between different cells. Okay, that's an interesting, uh, an interesting thing to be able to measure, but um, if this is true, then we're stuck with a, with a very uh, difficult model of how the brain works. Because if that's true, then every time you learn some new piece of knowledge, that makes some new excitatory connections, and so cortex will become unstable, and so the most intelligent, wise people will also be uh, the most erratic. (laughs) 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 I I, I thought this was a counter-example to this claim, until I uh, saw this resemblance here. Okay, Um, so it's obviously not a very good model of how the brain works that, even though we can measure something about it. And so, uh, so uh, we need to to, um, nuance that model with a very clever idea that was had by somebody else in this audience, uh, Tim Vogels, and is an idea that uh, got him a job at Oxford. (laughs) Um, So, um, this idea is that these... um, uh, excitatory connections can be balanced by inhibitory connections that grow between these representations as well. And this is a beautiful idea because it means that you can store many, many, many memories in, the, in a cortical network or many, many links or associations in a cortical network in a stable manner without it going, without each memory interfering with each, with each other or without um, uh, or without um, uh, the, the whole network going unstable. It's a beautiful idea, um, and, uh, and so Tim has helped us trying to measure human, uh, test this idea in humans. And so uh, if that's true, then you should no longer, when you activate this red guy, after these grey guys have appeared, after the inhibitory connections have appeared, you should no longer see any activity in this green guy And so that similarity that you measured before will go away. And indeed, uh, oh, yeah, so there's a memory, and then there's, and so Tim has hypothesized that there's also going to be this anti memory. Okay, so that's true, in fact, uh, for all of every time we've measured it, uh, these connect, these, um, uh, these links, this similarity we can measure between this guy and this guy, or this guy and this guy, or this guy and this guy. It's there for a short period of time, but then goes away. So either the cortex has forgotten it, or it's been balanced by these precisely mirrored inhibitory connections. Anti-memories. 
And so there's an interesting test that you could do of that. Um, if you're a good modeler like Tim is, you can uh, see what would happen if you just knocked out GABA or reduced GABA in this network. Because then you're going to reduce, so GABA is, for people who don't know, the inhibitory but not excitatory neurotransmitter in our brain. So that will knock out these grey ones but not the orange ones. And so if you knock out these grey ones but not the orange ones, this similarity will come back and you should be able to magic back this memory that, you, that, that disappeared. And you can see that memory again. So this is what Helen Barron has been doing in this heroic experiment. Um, and, uh, and so you can see this, uh, here are these rotating shapes, you can see early on they're there and then they go away. The similarity is there and then it goes away. And then Helen uses TDCS to reduce GABA so that she can, um, and she measures that with spectroscopy, so we get a, um, a measurable drop in GABA in this brain area here. And when Helen does that, this memory returns. So this, this uh, similarity that was present and then disappeared returns when you, um, when you reduce GABA, suggesting that an anti-memory, an inhibitory connection, has been, um, has been uh, placed there. And that's proportional to this GABA drop. Okay, that was hard work. <laughs> um, uh, so, back um, um, to this problem of where TGLE fits into the world, and that representation that we, um, that we uh, were learning about, has um, that new representation has presumably embedded with it a whole load of associations which become balanced and split by these anti-memories. But the other suggestion that we had was that it might be placed in a map of, the, of different parts of knowledge that you also had about the world. And um, fortunately, we know an awful lot about how uh, the brain codes for maps in a different, in a different situation entirely, which is, about, uh, which is in space. And so everybody here should know a little bit about this because this won the Nobel Prize this year. Um, this is uh, called a grid cell, uh, and when this uh, rat is running around a real proper space, uh, you can see that this cell fires at, this, at these regular intervals and codes for the coordinate system of that space. So this is a really good index that the brain has, or, or that the brain has a map of that space. <coughs> Good news for us is that space has a very regular structure. It's a hexagonal structure here. And that hexagonal structure can, in fact, be uh, seen in human imaging studies. So uh, if you place a um, human in an fMRI machine uh, and he wears a pair of virtual reality goggles uh, and you ask him to run around a video game in space, then you, um, uh, then you can see evidence of hexagonal uh, coding. And you can see it in exactly the same region as the rodent uh, grid cell region uh, called the entorhinal cortex. So here's the entorhinal cortex, and if, um, if people are running in this direction here, naught, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, well, 100, uh, 180 or naught, then uh, you can see a uh, big signal. If they're running between that region there, you can see a small signal. If they're running up here, here, you can, you can see a big signal. And so you can see hexagonal coding uh, in the entorhinal cortex of humans. 
and you can go in there and measure that hexagonal, uh, those hexagonal grid cells in uh, humans undergoing uh, operations where you can record directly from their cells. And so these grid cells exist in humans in the entorhinal cortex, but they also exist in lots of other parts of the brain in humans. Again, these, these have been validated um, by uh, interoperative recordings. And so, strikingly, the brain areas that these grid cells um, activate in, uh, in human, these spatial grid cells activating humans look very similar to the areas that we were activating in our T jelly study. And so that's a, um, a hint uh, that maybe uh, these new representations get placed into a kind of map-like structure. But can we test that kind of um, can we test that kind of idea much more rigorously? And so here's um, here are some associations, just like I told you. Um, so that here are some different associations. Instead of being between McDonald's and Starbucks, and, and McDonald's and an M sign, or Starbucks and a coffee sign, they're between uh, a bird and a Father Christmas, a different bird and a, and a, um, a Christmas tree, etc., etc., etc. So the brain has the opportunity to encode those associations as just a set of links. But because of the way that we've set up these birds, these stimuli, the brain also has the opportunity to encode these, um, these um, uh, rewards here on a map. So this is what that map would be. I can plot, uh, I can plot uh, make a plot of the length of these guys' necks, legs, against the length of his neck here. And you can see these guys are, um, are easily spread out on a map. And so the question is, when the brain has a re uh, is representing new knowledge, does it get represented in these map-like structures as well as these link-like structures as part of that representation? <clears throat> well, so to test that, we need to look for these hexagonal representations in these bird spaces. So that's what we're going to try and do. <clears throat> so uh, here's, uh, here are some, here's a bird that, that Alexandra has been been working with, and she has been making these birds stretch, and so you can see that if I um, stretch uh, this bird's neck here, that's like moving at 0 degrees in this map, and so the participants are going to watch this, and we're going to know what's happening in the map here. If I move at 90 degrees, that's like, that's like uh, stretching the legs, and so if a participant's watching this, then I know he's moving at 90 degrees. And then if I move at 60 degrees, um, uh, then it's like moving both the uh, legs and the neck together. And what I'm going to be looking for is while the uh, participant is moving through this space, I'm going to be, um, I'm going to be measuring uh, his signal in exactly the same way that you might do if a rodent was running through space or if... A, um, or if a person was running through virtual reality space in the scanner, but I'm going to align this signal and ask if, there is a, if there's a hexagonal encoding of a map, not in real space, but in this conceptual bird space. And so I can do that by aligning all these directions up and saying, well, do I have big signal at 0 and 60 and 120 and small signal between here? It's a very unusual prediction because it's really hard to imagine how that six-fold symmetry would come by any other means. And indeed, it's the case that if you look for the six-fold symmetry, you see it in these same brain regions. You see it in the medial frontal cortex, parietal cortex, parts of the temporal lobe. Um, I'll show you in a minute, it's in the entorhinal cortex. 
So uh, you can uh, you can see it uh, pretty uh, pretty clearly here. So um, here uh, at zero, there's a big signal. At 30 degrees, there's a small signal. At 60, there's a big signal. At 90, there's a small signal, etc., etc., etc. And I can map that out onto a circle and show you that it's precise six-fold symmetry that you're seeing um, in these brain regions, suggestive of a map-like representation of this entirely non-spatial thing, a new concept like tea jelly or like, um, or like uh, these birds. Uh, these uh, these um, uh, maps are consistent, these, these grid angles, these grids are consistent from one day to the next across different sessions. And you can see that the, these spatial grids recorded by Neil Burgess and Chris Dola uh, use exactly the same brain regions as these bird grids recorded by Alexandra Constantinescu in Oxford. So uh, you can see, um, so this is suggested to me that there are these, uh, that there are um, networks of the brain that have particular ability to code in these maps and do so not just in space but also in, uh, in, uh, in, in conceptual representations, new representations. And so those, those, pattern of acti- those patterns of activities that, um, that, that you imagined when you thought of tea jelly contain uh, some information about what the tea jelly will look like, what it's made of, it's made of tea and jelly, but they also contain some hidden links, some anti-memory hidden links to uh, other things that are related to tea jelly, like maybe... Um, uh, I don't know, uh, broccoli ice cream or something like that. Uh, but they, and, then, and then they also uh, perhaps contain a map, uh, uh, representations of where uh, tea jelly lies in the, in the map of, the, of conceptual knowledge that the brain encodes. <clears throat> and so those, those types of inferences, I think, are, uh, are um, unusual things to have been able to say with a, a technique like imaging. They're inferences that need um, backing up with uh, rodent and, and monkey data, which is why we've form these collaborations, but they are, um, I hope, the kind of place that the imaging uh, community is going to go into the future, being able to make uh, precise and detailed understandings of neuronal uh, coding uh, with human data. But uh, lastly, I I just wanted to um, explain that with uh, these types of understandings, complex understandings of neuronal codes, it's possible to go back to these original movies and understand a little bit about how these, uh, these basic signals are, are generated. And so you can, by doing that, you can, uh, you can make models that use these representations, and, but use them instead of just representing something, they use them to form functions, like making choices or deciding what somebody wants. And so Lawrence has done that, and he's, um, so he's um, made detailed models of how these cellular representations might compete with each other in choices, and he can show you that uh, this type of model makes this very precise prediction about what, this, uh, about what that bulk activity or that MEG signal would look like. Um, and so you don't need to know exactly what these different lines are. Um, there's several different things that should happen in this signature, but you need to know that it's a very precise signature that's predicted from a model that understands how, that tries to understand how these computations are happening. And then if you go and look into that data, you see that um, you can see that this prediction is met very clearly in that first brain region that we were talking about, the parietal cortex that was making that decision. 
And you can see this is the prediction that's made from those models, and this is the data you can record. So you can see these red line, this, this, this blue line, the overall value line, followed by the green line, only on the solid trials and not the dashed trials. It's a very precise, qualitative at least, um, uh, match. And you can see something very similar to that in this other brain, brain region we've been interested in, uh, which is the brain region uh, that was encoding that tea jelly. And again, you can see a not quite such a pretty picture. That's, that's to do with the measurement technique. Um, but again, the same kind of pattern of this blue signal followed by this green signal and only in the, dashed, uh, in the solid, not the dashed trials. And so, using the, your understanding of, of computational representations, you can build models of how to solve tasks, and then you can maybe um, use that to go and predict these uh, data that you are, these more descriptive data that I, were talk, that I was talking about at the very start. And lastly, we hope that we can use these uh, types of models to also try to understand uh, individual differences in behaviour. And so here's again one of those computational models, and, uh, but this is several different instantiations of one of those computational models. Um, so these might be like, like modelling different people. Some people are very fast but make a lot of mistakes. Other people are very slow but, get, but, but are very accurate. And you can see... Um, <coughs> Uh, so, in, in order to generate these different uh, predictions from these models, we needed to, um, uh, we need, what we needed to do was change the amount of inhibition and excitation in these networks. And indeed, these, kind, these, same, kind of, um, these same, the same kind of variability is seen in the actual population. Some people are very fast and very uh, error-strewn, and some people are very slow and very accurate. And the prediction is that that will be, in part, due... To the, um, to the amount of GABA, the neurochemistry, of their ventromedial prefrontal cortex. And if true, that means that you've really taken something very basic, like a neurochemical, you've used a computational model to understand what, um, what that neurochemical will, uh, what effect that neurochemical will have on, on the circuit, and therefore on behaviour. And so you can maybe try to understand directly how that differences in that neurochemical affect differences in behaviour across the population. And indeed, Gerhard Jockham and Lawrence Hunt showed that that, was, uh, showed that, that exactly was true. So, the, so the, most, uh, the people with the most GABA um, were most accurate and, and, uh, and slowest, and the people with the most glutamate uh, were least accurate and fastest. So you'll be very glad to know that I've now finished, um, and uh, this is... Um, this is uh, what I think. These are some other people that have been uh, fantastically influential in my career, um, and uh, I'm a bit worried about this. Uh, <laughs> uh, thanks very much indeed. Uh, Forty-seven minutes in. Wow. <laughs>